in the heart of the Arabian Peninsula, where the ancient meets the ultra-modern, lies a nation that has embarked on a transformative journey. One year on from hosting the FIFA World Cup. In this podcast documentary, we delve into the tapestry of Qatar's World Cup anniversary, exploring the symbiotic relationship between technology, sustainability, and the beautiful game itself. Venturing beyond the glitz of the Lucille Stadium, we uncover the intricacies of a nation that has seamlessly blended tradition with innovation. Join us as we traverse the vibrant streets of Qatar, witnessing firsthand the coverage of local culture and modernization, all while engaging in insightful conversations with the architects who breathe life into the iconic Lucille Stadium. This is a tale of a nation that dared to redefine the narrative of a global sporting event, a story of resilience, progress, and the harmonious coexistence of heritage and development. Welcome to the World Cup Chronicles, Qatar's Unveiling. In this exclusive documentary, we engage in conversations with the visionary architects behind Qatar's Lucille Stadium. Delving into Qatar's strategic planning, we explore the pivotal role sustainability plays in shaping the nation's endeavors. So, Marcel, how would you approach a design of something that you know will either be torn apart later on to be repurposed or would be kind of, you know, you'd maintain areas of that building, but you know that certain areas are going to be demolished or are going to be dismantled um, for further use elsewhere. How do you approach a design when you know that it's going to be taken away? Is that not heartbreaking? It's, well, it can be part of the fun. So as part of the process of us winning this contract, we were involved in many tenders and design concepts of our own through the World Cup. Uh, and we were shortlisted down to the final three on what became um, at the Marma Stadium. But that concept that we had there was very much, we played on the, the fact when it grows temporarily, you'd have a piece that you put on the top, which kind of looked like the rest of it, but kind of felt temporary. And then you could take that off and you were left with a with a with a permanent facility which was smaller a legacy. Ideally, you program your time out and you you use that extra time as you're saying, just to fine-tune things um and, and, and use that time to just make things right. Yeah. With this project, the time scales were so tight and, and you know, really, you know, there was a deadline that had to be hit that sometimes you almost didn't have time for some of that and you were using that that, that extra time just to just to deliver the basics. Um, and there was obviously a lot of travel involved. Some people were living out there for long protracted periods. I myself just travelled regularly for meetings. And it's quite hard work because you, you're, you're travelling into a city for a meeting on a day and you just need to make sure everyone else is there as well. Otherwise, it's a bit chaotic. 
How did you cope then with um, the COVID periods? Because, you know, there was restriction on travel. There was, uh, we had to deliver the project and, and collaboration coordination was so much more difficult. How did you cope with that? Because I know with a stadium, you need to sit around the same table together. You need to, to, to make sure that, you know, you're working on part of the circulation or part of the facade together. How did you do that? So luckily, by the time COVID struck, we'd done most of the our work. The contractor uh, in, the, in the Middle East, in Qatar, he employed his own um, um, kind of shot drawing team. So they then deliver the actual building, the, the, the precast sections and, and, and all the concrete detailing. So our work architect, uh, so our kind of um, information for construction was done primarily before uh, the pandemic hit, but we were still continuing to work through the pandemic. But we'd started the project already using Teams for more and more of the meetings. Oh. It was this new and Skype before that, but when Teams came on, we were pretty much using Teams. So when the pandemic hit, it was kind of that project already just gave us a bit of a warm up to how we all suddenly jumped. And amazingly, now, if you were running that project now, you probably wouldn't have even had to do quite as many of the trips as we did. Yeah. Because you'd have been a bit better set up. Such a very difficult you know, question to answer. I can, I can say at the beginning, actually, of the design of the stadium, I was, I was one of the... The one actually have the privilege to see it as you know uh, from the bank department. I can uh, maybe Albeit Stadium, yeah, because the Albeit Stadium actually it's about our identity. You know, it's it's it's, it's actually a, it's like a mirror about who we are here in the GCC country. So it started with the World Cup for the GC, uh, for uh, for an Albeit Stadium. The people when they come to see it, they said. It can't be done with that, you know, with that huge stadium with the tents, like you know, design it with it. Yeah. And um, I was I was there with the England um, matching with Senegal. Okay. And I was lucky actually. I was with the with the audience for from the from the English the British people. Yeah. And they were very happy actually. You know, they, as experience, I was I was listening to the, to the two guys actually still still actually remember that was that conversation. He said. They were looking for the stadium. He said, "Try to focus in the in the in the match." He says, yeah, I, "I'm trying to focus in the match, but you know, I'm trying to see that what the you know the fabulous about the stadium they have it here." Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was at, at that point. I was you know smiling and you know happy because yeah. the the feedback. Yeah, the feedback about the people, especially about the Britishing. Yeah, we are very happy about us. So we say that okay, we we are, we are you know. And an excellent, you know, rule it. We are very happy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm very content with the way that, you know, people were mesmerized by what they've seen as an Yeah. Yeah. What what are comments, you know, concentrate on the football, stop looking at the stadium. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. What a great memory to have. Yes. Lucille, I I went to Lucille Stadium. So that was very huge, to be honest. Um, 90,000 capacity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That, you know, the number of the, of the people is massive, you know. It's once you're there, it's the, the people and the, the audience, all of them are there, and you're trying to see that I'm like, you know, an arena. You know, it's a big arena. You know, you know the, the Coliseum there. That, no, yeah. Yeah. it's like you give it the you give it a, trying to give you. Sometimes for me, I said at the ages, you know, the back one of for the arena. What was the audience trying to see, and you know how they crowded it? 
I lived there on the wooden sail, and I I heard it. Yeah. And I was very not you know, I don't know how to say it's scared and happy, you know, at the same time because you know scared about the huge of the people that uh, you know who's actually attends the match. Yeah. Um, I can tell about uh, you know Al Medina Taalimiyah, the Education City Stadium. Yeah. It's like you know more modern stadiums. Yeah. With the techniques about how can you actually reach it. So that's one of the sustainability. I can I can yeah I can uh, point there. Yeah. So there is a drop uh, there is a drop area for the stadium. You can go by your car or by taxi or by metro. Once you res- you you there, you can use the tram. To go to the to the to the education stadium. Does we have this one in the other stadium? We have it, but we have with the metro. We didn't have with the tram. For example, the Rusail, there is no, none. You can go by metro and then you can go by walk, or you can use the bus. Yes. But the education city, because they already have it in the master plan uh, about the trams, so it's like the people actually living there. Uh, it's more like you know, modern or the future of like you know, future cities, something like that. Yeah. That so the expression about. Every you know, uh, every stadium they have their own you know their own expression and their own identity. What's also really impressive is that the building has had um, a five-star rating uh, for design and build and construction under the uh, wastewater recycling uh, scheme. With this whole big drive on sustainability, Qatar has you know a green. Desert is, you know, part of what their Expo 2023 they're talking about, and um, to see that they have conserved in Lusail Stadium 40% of their recycled water to, you know, water the plants mm. and to use for for different parts of the building. I think that's just really a, a, a very uh, modern way of looking at a building, not just for the design or to be elaborate or to to host the World Cup, but to actually give something back to the world, you know, and yes. and have that sustainability angle on it. Do you, what is your angle working with stadiums holistically, not just in sale, you know, in terms of sustainability? Are we doing enough? Do you think we should be putting more into what's there? I certainly think as a as an industry, we, we're not doing enough sustainability. And... I think we're moving into a world now where we're starting to understand much more the impact our decisions on specifying products, materials, and how that affects the climate. So would you say is the lack of knowledge then? Because, you know, we're saying we're understanding more. Is it the lack of knowledge and how to be sustainable? Or is it, what, what's the restricted, what's the barrier? Ultimately, buildings are built for a price budget. And traditionally, the way you Procure a building is the cheapest way of building it. So a contractor um, or a builder will say, like, well, if I build that out of steel, that's cheaper than concrete this week. Or nobody will say concrete's cheaper. But timber, which may be a suitable as construction method, say that week um, timber's not not easy to source because there's no timber forest nearby, or or timber soars ahead of steel because steel goes up and therefore timber gets scarce. You know, so you. You're dealing with all these things which are generally money-driven and they're not necessarily sustainability-driven. So I think what we're missing in the construction business is an illegal uh, carbon framework where we say that that's as important as cost. And if if we have the... If we somehow we can get that down as as some kind of legal framework, then 
you'd always have to be checking back to that. Qatar's hosting of the FIFA World Cup epitomises a profound commitment to sustainability existing far beyond the tournament itself, centred around the environmentally conscious Lusail Stadium. Designed by forward-thinking architects, Qatar integrates sustainability into its urban development and infrastructure projects, setting a precedent for eco-friendly living. Our exploration during this podcast documentary dives into the strategies employed by the nation to balance the grandeur of the World Cup with ecological responsibility, capturing the voices of architects and Qatari nationals alike. A year on from the World Cup, it is evident that Qatar's dedication to sustainability is a guiding ethos, ensuring a lasting legacy of responsible development and global impact. to me a bit more about how you felt capturing you know the stadium before everything was built and how you felt once everything was built. it's amazing work really it's amazing work and uh, i started with uh, uh, a lot of stadiums before uh, before uh, start to 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 to, uh, uh, to make it until they done with everything with light with everything and I have uh, a different shots from uh, day, uh, night uh, shot, uh, between that, uh, like time lapse from the day until tonight. I have from uh, for Khalifa uh, uh, International Stadium, I have for Lusail, uh, Albeit Stadium, uh, 974. Uh, you know, uh, there's uh, amazing work amazing uh, finishing amazing uh, amazing style yeah absolutely so um i think do you have a preference in terms of filming at night or filming in day you know the, uh, the stadiums no. the, the very you know huge the the very large structures and some placed in the middle of nowhere and some place with some really nice surroundings which one did you prefer to film you know, nighttime stadiums or daytime stadiums? Depends, uh, but you know, uh, the, the best time and, and videographer or photographers, we call it, there's one gold hour. It's, uh, we call it this time gold hour. Uh, this one, uh, it's between, for example, before sunset until sunset and until come little black. Yes. Uh, or little dark. Yeah. This time, we call it uh, golden hour. So I can take both. I can take 
and they uh, normal uh, shot and we can take it with sunset and after one come little dark yeah so this this time we can cut uh, catch uh, three of uh, shots different uh, time yeah. so then we can keep it in one in one video yeah. so you can see it before until after so that that's impressive because um, you know during my time here in Qatar i realized you know when you walk around a place and when it comes to sunset and you see all of the lights lighting it up, all, yeah. it gives you a different perspective. Yes, completely. yes, yes. So yes. you are definitely capturing quite a lot of Yes, it. yes, I, I capture, you know, I like, for example, I like to to, 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 to catch this time with 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 the light, when the light start yeah. to open. Yeah. This is, it's amazing uh, time because still we have light from the sky yeah. and the light with with a stadium for example yeah. so you can catch this two thing with the building before it's come dark yeah. uh, but the light it will uh, open yeah definitely yeah. and and we've had this conversation previously before we started to record where you know that nothing beats daylight you know no matter how many flashlights was it that you said we can have there's nothing will be daylight in terms of film yes yes yeah Now let's kind of get to the fun bit of, um, you know, when when someone kind of looks at a stadium and says, right, okay, capacity was 88,966 most seats, was it? Most seated people during the World Cup. How do you distinguish the difference between a stadium that's been purpose-built for a World Cup and one that hasn't been? What's the main drivers? Oh, right, crikey. I mean... The obvious one is if you're designing for a World Cup, you have specific numbers on hospitality, VIP guests, parking. Uh, they're written down in the select letter of the law. So you, you're not designing to a business plan for a football club where they want to sell more skyboxes to lounges or more lounges to skyboxes or premium GA. Or What you're doing is you're saying these are the things that FIFA must have and then that's what you deliver. So, so there's a lot of the design which is probably not necessarily what a football club would want. However, in general, it it often works out about the same. You often do about eight percent of your seating capacity as hospitality. So, but but it's it's the it's the it's the litigious square meters they put down for everything, and the and the square meter per person is very very specific. Perfect. So in terms of seat numbers then, just to give us a rough idea, you know, you say oh, close to 90,000 uh, seats. Mm. Is, does it have to be, you know, above 30,000 seats or something like that? Each stage of a World Cup, you have uh, the group stages and you have the round of 16, the quarterfinals, the semifinals and then the final. Progressively, as you'd imagine, each, each group stage or each uh, each stage of the tournament, they get bigger and bigger. Oh, brilliant. So, so Lucille... So Lucille has to be over night 80. Because? So that, that's the final. So any World Cup final or any Olympic stadium, similar in both sports, has to be over night 80. And then um, semi-finals can be plus 60. Quarter-finals can be 40 to 60. But generally, you know, you're looking at 50, average 50. And then group stage games can be down at 40,000 or 45,000. 
So contract, contractually, it's very different. Uh, you, they're not used to building stadia there. And even though they, there is a lot of construction going on in Qatar, it's it's quite a new profession, really, if you think about it. So Qatar's a very new place. Historically, it's been there for years, but in terms of the, the, the level of development, it's really only been in the last 20 years, which is quite something. So that, that was the hardest challenge. You're working in an environment where everyone's doing it for the first time. There are stadia there, but they're quite small. Most of them don't have roofs. And um, the level of detail, technology, and and effort you have to put into these things, I think it's just they were almost overwhelmed and not not aware of how much that takes. So in Lusail Stadium, we probably have the largest number of prayer rooms in any stadium in the world, and we had to design to a number that was agreed. We did one in eight, so for every eight spectators, we had uh, one prayer mat space. So this generated very large prayer rooms. And obviously we had to be cognizant of the fact that there could be prayer time which overlaps with maybe the arrival time or the egress time for an event. So potentially in a, in a, in a, in a country where there's a large number of people who are observing prayer times at different times through the day, we had to make sure we could provide space where they could easily do that. In most UK settings now, we're, 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 we're not just, not just um, for Christian faith, but we also put, you know, we put in a multi-faith room in most buildings now to allow the fact that um, all faiths may just need a space, a quiet space to go and do their prayer or even just to go and cry or, you know, just have a moment. Whatever you want to do in your multi-faith room, it's quite important to have that point where you can be spiritual or, or, or contemplative. One other thing with regards to technologies in Lucille Stadium, they had these great big grey air conditioning units. What's that? Oh, it, it, for the stadium. For the stadium. Yeah. So, the, so okay. the so the so the the whole stadium was actually air cooled. Air cooled, not conditioned. Yes. So the the idea is, if you imagine dry ice, which most people are familiar with, if you watch a concert or we used to watch Top of the Pops back in the day, if you're old enough. But dry ice basically is cold, frozen. Um, hydrogen which you just mix it with a bit, a bit of air and water in it it just kind of forms this kind of this this almost river of of, of smoke or mist some restaurants bring out pit like yeah, that yeah. so if you just imagine you've got that picture in your head have it and then effectively that's how we cooled cooled the air in the stadium so we just dropped air in at the back of the upper tier oh. and then in the lower tier um vents behind everyone's seats and the idea is the cool air would come out and then just drop down the seats and it would just cool the air in the meter zone of where you sat. Because otherwise, if you're trying to condition the entire stadium, it would be impossible, you'd just be forever doing it. So the idea is you let gravity take that cool air and it lands on the pitch and then on the edge of the pitch are lots of blowers and they were blowing cool air across the playing surface. And that's basically how we uh, kept the temperature. the impact of that cool air, that's going onto the pitches, you know, if you walk close by it, would you feel a big yeah. gush of wind almost? Or? The idea is it's it's low velocity. Okay. So it's the idea is you're, you're just trying to blow it out so that it's um, it's it, it's using gravity. So if you, if you imagine filling a bath with water, you can have the tap on low or you can have it on high, 
but eventually the water all fills up and it's like that you're just trying to get the cool air which sinks and warm air rises so you're just you're just filling the pitch with a, a kind of a layer of cool air during the the game with, with brazil you know everyone's ramming roaring whatever you want to call it did you feel cool did you yes you you definitely feel absolutely fine if anything if you go in shorts then it in a t-shirt you're a bit too cold and in the once the, uh, the some of the end games were uh, november and i think it went into december and it went middle of december the final by then the weather in qatar is actually really really pleasant and in the evenings it gets quite cool at the beginning of the tournament it was quite hot the winter in the middle east is it's lovely it's what they what the, the air-cooled stadiums will mean is in legacy they can play later into the season because their playing season's so short. So I know in Dubai and Abu Dhabi, where we've uh, do, um, done bits of work before, they've spoken to us about just trying to lengthen that season, looking about putting roofs on stadia, adding air conditioning to them so they can just extend their playing season. While I couldn't attend the 2022 World Cup in person, its profound impact resonated far beyond the stadium walls fostering global peace. In this documentary podcast, we explored perspectives from architects, locals and professionals who spoke about technology and sustainability and how it shaped the backbone of the most peaceful World Cup ever. It was great to witness firsthand how the generosity of the locals is manifested in the grand architecture of their stadiums and buildings alike. This journey was undeniably unforgettable, leaving an incredible mark on my memories. Am I inspired to be part of the World Cup audience in the future? Yes, I believe so. Will I revisit Qatar? I sincerely hope so. Am I inspired? Without a doubt.